for your yeah. Welcome everybody to our first in a series of restorative justice calls. Uh, we are the Peace Alliance, and you can find us at peacealliance.org. We have programs on Tuesday nights and on Wednesday nights and some Saturdays. This is the first time for us to start a Saturday call uh, with the Peace Alliance uh, Restorative Justice Series. And so I'd like to uh, get started pretty quickly here. Uh, again, if you want to see all of our programs, we have an empathy circle, we have um, a multicultural consciousness raising book club, we have our national peace builder calls. Uh, this month we feature Marianne Williamson one night, Dennis Kucinich one night, uh, and on Wednesdays, the third Wednesdays of every month, we have the Department of Peace Building call. Second and fourth Saturdays are the Hope Circle, and this is our first in a series of restorative justice uh, calls. And so uh, Patty uh, Latai is our team lead for humanizing the criminal justice system. Uh, she's going to introduce Kathleen McGoy, and she will also be our featured author uh, the last Saturday of this month with her book, Pause for Peace, P-A-W-S, Using Therapy Animals in Restorative Justice. So over to you, Patty. Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here Saturday morning and um, happy to introduce the authors of this book that we've been promoting um, and hoping that people will be um, either listening today and going out and purchasing that or ordering that um, and learning to promote restorative justice within the school systems and the interactive games and play and things that kids as well as educators can um, benefit from. And um, I would like to introduce Kathleen McGoy and she and I, um, we were fortunate enough to meet when we were both actively engaged in restorative justice programming within the state of Colorado. Um, Colorado is known for its progressive approach to restorative justice, which is basically working with individuals in areas of conflict or crime, in that we focus on repairing the harm to relationships within the community and to the individuals who did the harm and the by the harm. So I've learned so much from Kathleen over the years, and this book is a wonderful culmination of the work that she's done. Um, and so I give you Kathleen. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much, Patty and Kathy. Um, just to give you reference, here is the little book that they've been referencing. It's called The Little Book of Restorative Teaching Tools. Uh, games, activities, and simulations for understanding restorative justice. My name's Kathleen McGoy, and um, Lindsay Pointer, one of the co-authors on this book, was supposed to be joining us today, but sadly, she's sick. She, she sends her regrets. She had hoped to be here, um, but maybe at a future gathering, she'll be able to join us. Um, so I would like to start with just telling you all a little more of the story 
of me and Lindsay and our other co-author Haley Farah and how we arrived at writing this book and particularly to emphasize the journey of peace building. I know that this group organizes through the Peace Alliance um, and peace building is really the practice and the vision and the goal that brought me to restorative justice. So um, I have a background uh, in, in college. I was studying abroad in Latin America. I spent one semester in Santiago, Chile, and then another semester in Oaxaca, Mexico. And those were really my first experiences of kind of waking up to global social injustice. And while I was actually getting my degree in studio art, which is what I graduated with, a bachelor's degree in studio art, I discovered that what really resonated for me was figuring out what to do about the hurt and the pain and the struggles and systems of oppression that I was witnessing in the world. So in Oaxaca, which is in Southern Mexico in particular, I witnessed the effects of migration. So I was living and studying, traveling through these small villages and communities. Um, Oaxaca has one of the most richly diverse um, regions in terms of indigenous people, many indigenous groups, and also flora and fauna. And what I was recognizing, um, it's very, it's not hard to notice that there is an absence of young men and boy and, and um, older men because all of them had left to migrate to the north of Mexico to look for work. And this was displacement caused by free trade agreements like NAFTA. And so this was kind of a wake up call for me that actually led my interest to well, what's happening in the north and what's happening on the border. And so fast forward, um, as I was graduating from college, I discovered an opportunity to go and work on the US-Mexico border in Tijuana and the Baja California Peninsula. Uh, there is an organization that sadly no longer exists. It was a tiny nonprofit called Los Embajadores, the Ambassadors. And that program brought high school students and college students from the US and Canada down to the border region to learn about border issues, to do service work in the community. And the emphasis of that program was to facilitate that education through relationships. So I became a volunteer the first summer after I graduated, I spent a summer in Tijuana. And a few years later, I became the executive director of that organization and worked there for the next three to just over three years. And over that time, my perspective began to change around what, what can I do to really make a difference, right? So at one point I thought, you know, I have to travel the world and offer my assistance, my service based on what I think is helpful or what I think is useful. And over those years that I worked on the border, what I really grew to love and appreciate was actually being in the role of facilitator and being able to facilitate that cross-cultural communication. So the groups visiting Mexico from the North and the communities that we were connecting with 
just being in a space over a meal around a soccer game and allowing conversations to unfold naturally and easily and watching people reach new ideas and discover new perspectives just from being in connection and being in relationship. After a few years of working on the border, I decided to uh, pursue my master's degree. And so I um, went to Spain. Uh, it turns out that graduate school is affordable in Europe. And I also wanted to continue doing something international and using, I'm a Spanish speaker, so I wanted to be practicing Spanish. And surprisingly, I arrived in Spain and discovered um, that this program I had enrolled in, which was an international peace and conflict studies, had a heavy, heavy emphasis on the philosophy of pieces so that there are many, many versions of peace. And so it was this high level conceptual philosophical approach. There is a lot of emphasis on studying the UN and development work, the United Nations that is. And, um, you know, I had just come from really hands-on experiential field work. And so it wasn't quite a match. What I was looking for, what I was looking to do is deepen my experiences and build on them. And this program in Spain wasn't quite right for me. So I transferred to a different program in Innsbruck, Austria, which really emphasized this idea of, oh, if you have these ideals, you want to do humanitarian work in the world, you know, maybe you want to travel to post-conflict zones and try to restore and restabilize and support communities there, that it is essential for you to do your own internal work. This was a huge emphasis of, are you going to be prepared? And I'll just, I'll, I'll share with you where that came from. The founders of the program in Austria, uh, one of them had traveled to Nicaragua after the civil wars there and had seen many international aid workers basically falling apart, witnessing horrific violence and the consequences of violence, um, you know, human suffering in all forms. And he observed that human aid workers were actually causing more harm because they were not equipped to deal with their own shadows, the own things, their own things that came up when confronting such hardship. So he designed this graduate program basically to create experiences for the students where we would be pushed to our edges of our comfort. We would be in these high pressure scenarios, for example, training with the Austrian army. So the Austrian army is a peacekeeping force that gets deployed with NATO. And they would take us peace students up into the Alps and do a simulated peacekeeping um, project like a mission where we were acting as the United Nations and we'd have to navigate roadblocks and landmines and do negotiations with these Austrian soldiers who were role playing but carrying their weapons. Um, and we would have to like live out what it would be like to be in that situation and then sometimes be confronted with, uh, you know, discovering people on the side of the road who had simulated injuries from landmines and things like that. So this program, in addition to being personally challenging, 
um, also reintroduced me to the model of piecework that is what led me to restorative justice. And that is um, a model called elicitive conflict transformation, which is a, a gift and a concept from John Paul Lederach, who is a renowned international peace builder. I see some nods, the name is familiar. And so just briefly to describe that for those of you who may not know, um, one way to understand elicitive conflict transformation is to compare it to conflict resolution or conflict management. So conflict resolution tends to see conflict as a problem that exists outside of ourselves that we have to like approach as a problem to be solved. And once we address the problem with some sort of formula or method, the problem will go away and we can move on. It also typically relies on a prescriptive approach, right? That says a, a peace worker a facilitator will come in and sort of apply a formula to reach a conclusion. Conflict management, on the other hand, sees conflict as something that's kind of just always gonna be there and gives different tools and approaches for tolerating it, right? So you just kind of manage the conflict. And both of these approaches can be useful depending on the particular scenario. What really drew me in was this model of conflict transformation, which says that conflict is just a natural phenomenon that's always going to be existing wherever humans are present, right? Wherever there's more than one person, or I like to think even when it's just me, conflict is present, right? Internal, intrapersonal conflict. And when approached with certain attitudes and ideas and approaches and, and methods, I should say, um, that emphasize the elicitive component, right? Which means that the parties in conflict already hold the knowledge of what's possible as they move through the difficulty of the disagreement or the, you know, whatever is kind of at the heart of the conflict and that a facilitator of this model is really just there to elicit that wisdom to get to unforeseen possibilities, right? So you can imagine like if you're in a, a fight with someone, we tend to kind of just like dig our heels in and get stuck, right? Like I'm, I'm in this position, you're in this position and we get a little stuck. So the facilitator in this model has tools to lift people out of the stuckness and through that elicitive facilitation, reach new ideas, new perspectives. And that through that, every participant in the process is transformed and has transformation of their ideas and expectations about themselves and others. So this model really spoke to me. I'm someone who grew up without learning many tools for conflict. I was, I was pretty conflict avoidant. Um, I learned a lot of great methods to be passive aggressive, aggressive in conflict, um, which I then didn't want to perpetuate. So as I finished up my degree, I thought, well, what, what am I going to do with this, right? Like I have this beautiful aspiration of working in conflict transformation, but what does that look like practically? I moved to Colorado to write my thesis and as I was reading some texts, I discovered that John Paul Lederach's daughter, Angie Lederach, 
had worked in this organization called Teaching Peace that was later renamed Longmont Community Justice Partnership that offers restorative justice in Longmont, Colorado. And when you're living in Boulder, Colorado, you think nothing is happening in Longmont, Colorado, even though they're right next door. So I was like, what is this? What could possibly be happening in Longmont? I came to volunteer in Longmont, which is where I am right now. Um, and one month later, I was hired as a bilingual case coordinator working in their community restorative justice program. So I'll pause before getting into what that looked like to introduce Lindsay. So at the time that I got hired at Longmont Community Justice Partnership, which is LCJP, Lindsay was finishing college at Colorado College. And I love this part of our story because Lindsay and I have a 10 year age difference. And whereas when I was going through college, no one was talking about restorative justice that I knew of. Lindsay was actually applying restorative justice practices as, a, as an RA in the dorms. So she not only was familiar with it, she was already taking it out of this justice context and using it um, to establish values and norms and expectations in the dorm for the college students. So I had a job opening um, that I was managing at LCJP. Lindsay applied. Lindsay was living in China at the time she had finished college. We did a, an interview where we talked about how much she missed cheese and peanut butter and she got the job. <laughs> and so Lindsay and I were working together in the Community Restorative Justice Program. This is around 2014. And the way that that program operates, just to give you a little background, is um, the Longmont police, when they go out on a call for service uh, and they make contact with a victim and offender, um, the language that we use in restorative justice is harm party and responsible party. Um, if the officer sees that the person who caused the crime is taking responsibility and the person who's been impacted is willing for the crime to go an alternate route, that officer can refer the case directly to re the restorative justice program at the nonprofit instead of writing a ticket or making an arrest. At that time, we were seeing about 100 to 150 cases per year. Three quarters of the cases involve youth, um, the arrest or adults, and we could work with misdemeanor and felony level pending charges. Um, the only charges that we didn't accept were things involving traffic violations or anything carrying a mandatory arrest like sex assault or domestic violence. So Lindsay and I were working hard in this program and a huge piece of what we did was recruit and train community volunteers. Volunteers are central to restorative justice models. It's one way of really giving voice back to the community in the creation of justice. It's also one way that we're practicing that elicitive conflict transformation model, right? So we rely on all these different parties coming together, the harm party, responsible person, with volunteer facilitators, and representative community members to talk about what happened, what can you take responsibility for, who was impacted and how, 
And then what can be done to make things right? And all of the participants that I just named answer those questions and they all have responsibility to speak to what needs to happen next for this incident to be addressed, for needs to be met so that we can reintegrate as a whole. We can accept the person who caused harm as more than just that one choice or that one incident. We respect them and trust them to take reparative action to make things right in the relationships that they've harmed. And through that process, we welcome them into the community without a criminal record um, and without any need to, to remove them from their families, from their lives, from their schools, et cetera. So a huge piece of what we did was train volunteers. And one of the things that makes LCJP so unique is there is a legacy there of playing games and activities to really bring restorative principles into a lived experience, right? So when you want to become a restorative justice practitioner, it's not just a matter of studying what restorative justice is in a book. Um, there's a real need to understand the concepts and then try them on really live them, see how they change your thoughts and your words, your actions. And it's, it's hard to do unless it's really a holistic practice. And so one way that we found we could give volunteers a holistic experience was through games and activities where they could try on practice using restorative tools in a playful and fun environment, right? So when you're actually facilitating a restorative justice process, it can be really intense. You've got the person who was harmed and the person who caused harm sitting close to each other in, in the circle. Uh, in the LCJP model, uh, we had the participant or the referring police officer in the circle as well. And so there's this real pressure intensity in the moment. And we wanted to sort of simulate that for our volunteers but in a low pressure moment, it's a, if, you, if you're tracking my story, right, it kind of sounds a little bit like what we were doing with the Austrian army and these simulated peacekeeping missions. Different context, but similar theory, similar approach. And so we, along with our um, two beloved colleagues, Ken Koisenkoten and Laura Snyder, we were developing games and activities over those years at LCJP to work well with our volunteers. And we found them to be really effective. So fast forward a few more years and Lindsay and Haley, our other co-author, were living in New Zealand. They both got uh, Fulbright fellowships to study restorative justice in Wellington, New Zealand. I went to go visit them and they said, hey, who's, who's publishing about all the great work that's happening at LCJP in Longmont? And I, I was the executive director at the time and I'm like, oh, I don't have time to be publishing. Like I'm running an organization and overseeing all these partnerships and stakeholders. And they said, well, let's co-author something. So that led to Lindsay and I writing an article uh, about using games and activities to teach restorative justice in the International Journal of Restorative Justice. And then from there, we built onto the article um, and co-authored this little book. 
Um, and we have enjoyed so much. This book was published in March 2020. Um, and I'll just, I'll tell you a little bit more about what's in the book before um, doing a little bit of an activity with you all. Um, but what I want to also put your or point your direction, your attention towards is that we also have a website, restorativeteachingtools.com. And every month since the book was published, we have released a new game or activity on the website. So all of these things are available open source for you for free. The instructions are there. Um, and we have emphasized trying to be responsive to what's happening in the world, right? So we come up with new games and activities based on learning needs and strategies for how to meet those needs given our current context. So one thing that's happened since March 2020 is almost everybody started doing training via Zoom or some online platform. So we released primarily activities that could be facilitated on an online platform. Um, also, we saw this, you know, kind of nationwide reckoning around racial justice and the importance of prioritizing equity and inclusion in restorative practices, which has always been a theme, but we realized that people were really looking for specific ways to uplift that important theme in their restorative justice work. So we created a number of games and activities specifically about that, how to use restorative practices in order to explore responsibility and how I can become more aware of my biases, my assumptions, my perspective, um, and in perpetuating racial harm or systems of oppression. So I wanna really encourage you to check out the website if you're interested in learning more. Um, we also have a mailing list so you can sign up and get the new game or activity each month delivered right to your inbox. So check that out. Um, and in the book, um, one thing I just wanna mention is that we do really emphasize that theme of it's, in this model of restorative pedagogy, similar to elicitive conflict transformation, um, we're looking at the teacher or facilitator as someone who is also participating in the process of learning. So instead of a more conventional uh, educational model where the teacher is the holder of the wisdom and imbuing the students with that wisdom and the students are just kind of these empty vessels that are waiting to be filled. Um, we say that actually the teacher or facilitator is also a participant in the learning process. And so there's a co-creative experience going on um, where we really want the facilitator, teacher, trainer to come in with that attitude and mentality of being self-reflective of bringing humility and compassion to the learning space in order to model that all of us are here to learn together and that we all have wisdom and knowledge to share. And even if I'm the facilitator who's guiding the experience that I also can admit that I don't know what I don't know and that I can be challenged, um, I can be asked to be curious 
right? About really being in relationship with others and the material in a community of learning. So I'll pause there with my description because I'd really like to invite you um, to participate in one of our activities, which is called, thanks Dan, I see Dan's enthusiastic response, woohoo. Um, and I know some people are um, tuning in to this presentation uh, just via audio. So I want to ask you, even though you can't um, see what's happening on the screen or see what's happening on the chat, I'd like to encourage you to still just participate by thinking about the questions that I'm asking. You can even speak your answers out loud um, so that you can really have a lived experience with us. So this activity is called, What Did I Need? And this is an activity that we frequently use just to orient and bring people together um, to start, like I mentioned before, kind of trying on the restorative justice principles. Like what would it, what is it like for me in my lived experience? And thank you so much. I'm seeing more people come on camera. It's wonderful to see your faces. Is everyone who's here on Zoom able to access the chat? Great, some thumbs up. So if you open the chat box, this is where I'm gonna ask you to type in your answers. And for those of you who are just listening, I'll, I will read the, some of the answers that I'm seeing out loud. So the first question is, think about a time when you were part of a community where there was some incident of harm. It could be a, a, a crime, but it could just be a conflict, like maybe in the workplace. So you weren't directly involved in causing the harm or being harmed, but you were just part of the community that was impacted. In that situation, when you were a community member, what did you need? So you're in this community that's experienced harm. What are some of the things that you needed? And if you could write that into the chat. I see accountability. I see openness, care, and clarity. Someone experienced to bring us together to talk. Acknowledgement of the harm by those in power. Yeah, the role of leadership. Awareness of others in the same situation, common experience. Yes, so realizing that you're, you weren't alone in the harm. Another person wrote non-judgmental and repair of harm, empathy. Wonderful. One person added, what happened? Right, like this need for information. Something happened, but what was it? Cross-cultural awareness in order to avoid further harm. Thank you. Compassion. And to be seen. Okay, so thank you for that question. Second question. Now you're placing yourself in a moment where you experienced harm directly. So again, this could be uh, being victimized from a crime 
or someone who was on the other side of an offensive comment, something that hurt you directly. So thinking of a time when you were hurt or harmed, in that scenario, what did you need? Protection. Validation. To be deeply listened to. Respect, awareness, communication for them to notice that I was hurt and for me to have the courage to speak up for myself, for someone around me to speak up in support of me and against the harm to be seen. Yeah, so I'm seeing a lot of um, both the validation and recognition and also support to have the courage to name what happened, to have a shared reality. Yeah, so again, that coming out of isolation and recognition that there's interconnectedness here. And self-worth. Okay, third question. You might be guessing where this is going. So imagining a scenario where you are the one who caused hurt or harm. So this could be something that you did inadvertently Often, often the way that we hurt each other is not intended, um, but you caused hurt or harm. What did you need? A way to make it right. Humility and overcoming the shame. Thank you. Space to process, but then bring accountability. Yeah, thank you. I really relate to that one. Awareness that I created hurt. To be immediately told about my impact, to be allowed an opportunity to address it. Courage to address what I have done to all who were harmed. Time to reflect, a process to move past shame and then repair. Clarity, communication, self-acceptance, and cooperation. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Self-compassion, yes. Thank you. I think that I think we've caught I've caught up to everyone who entered into the chat. And for those of you who are listening, I hope you were able to think through those questions just on your own or share with people around you. Um, a last one came in overcoming a sense of isolation, right? And that is that's such a um, powerful one in the case of the justice system, right? As is shame. So. Um, I'm curious, just from those of you who, who I can see, if anyone would like to speak up to unmute um, and just share any reflection about what you noticed as you either en entered your answers into the chat or as you listened to me reading back some of the things that you all identified in terms of your needs. Any observations that you'd like to share? 
um, I could share a little. Um, I, I, what I noticed uh, was really I could describe as my heart warming to um, like everybody involved. I guess, yeah, looking at looking in on the level of needs and thinking about myself in that situation or someone else. Um, yeah, sort of a softening and a sense of possibility. Yeah, thank you, Dan. That that softening, heartwarming um, is so distinct from what we are often told uh, in an adversarial system, which is all around us, right? In the justice system, in schools, in workplaces, um, where we're often led to be in this sort of us versus them, right? Like, well, I would never do that. So you must be somebody who's like this and I'll be over here um, instead of what we, what, what's possible in a restorative justice uh, approach is to recognize that we've all been in these different roles. Um, I wrote, I see someone in the chat wrote, felt good to talk about how much courage I need to do this work. It's hard work, but worth it. While the questions are simple, they are also very deep. Yeah, thank you. Anyone else want to speak, uh, share their voice in this space to share an observation? Judy. I, uh, I noticed that um, it's like I had to put on three different baseball hats. I had to, and, and uh, that it, it takes a little effort to, to really get yourself in, into the different roles um, and, and really look from a victim's point of view or the perpetrator's point of view um, with a new set of thoughts and listening. Um, because I think we all tend to fall into wearing one of those baseball hats, but, but putting on the others, uh, it takes a little bit more energy and engagement, I think. Mm. to an effort, personal effort, commitment to being the perpetrator, for example, and really what's behind that, not so much the action of whatever the person did to hurt, but what was the background conversation behind the hurt and why did they do it from that vantage? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, there is, there is more energy and effort required to dig in a little bit more um, which is so interesting that you name that, you know, because that is something that in a restorative justice process we do in community, right? Mm -hmm. So we rely on a, a process with guidelines and a facilitator to help elevate mm -hmm. each person into that space of imagining, you know, going through like, well, what could I have done differently? Or what was the impact, even though it wasn't my intent? Mm -hmm. And that's such a big shift compared to well, something, something wrong happened. And so we have to refer to the state, mm -hmm. the lawyers, the judge, or the teacher, the principal, mm -hmm. and they will assess from on high and apply the law of the land to determine the outcome, right? It's, it's a little bit of an abdication of responsibility um, that we've become very accustomed to, right? And, and some people think that that is enough. And yet the energy I would say that you're describing to really take, to dig in and reflect is what makes change actually possible. Mm, 
Yeah, please. I see another hand up. Uh, <clears throat> I live in the middle of this conflict and uh, really it's not easy. Uh, it's need like a lot of energy to be awareness and about our needs and value. And, uh, and it's need really a lot of um, awareness in what's happened inside me in the middle of the conflict. And uh, I have um, a lot of experience, like I live in a conflict, like I am Palestinian. And, uh, you know, when we have uh, this, um, like many think it's happened, I'm a peacemaker and just I need to feel safe, to explain my needs, what I'm feeling like, uh, and then the other can listen to me in open heart and I know they will not going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's needed from the both side to listen deep and in, in open heart. And uh, yeah, and it's, but it's, uh, it's not easy. Yeah. It's a, it's a process and uh, how to say it? Like it's, it's all the time we need to work in our, our uh, my awareness in this mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. It's nonstop the process. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Could you share your name with us? Uh, Itaf. Itaf. I, my name is Itaf. I live in Haifa. In Haifa. Thank you so much for being here, Itaf, and for sharing your lived immediate experience, um, mm-hmm. which is so profound that you could share, um, yeah, the importance of this is not easy, especially being in the in the moment in the location where you are, and that it's an ongoing, it's ongoing effort, right, to reframe and refocus around needs, and also I think what I heard you say is there's that piece of trusting that I won't be abandoned that I won't be left to feel alone when I'm asked to really dig dig deep to be in that process of both naming my needs and listening, that we have to be able to hold that space over time because it isn't a quick, it isn't a quick resolution or a quick fix. And that's, relationships don't change quickly, right? Relational conflict is not something, again, that we, approach and say, this is a quick problem to be solved. Here's the answer. Okay, everybody's better. It's actually ongoing practice. Thank you so much. And oh yeah, and and, um, I'll have Linda share and then I'll kind of wrap us up. Thanks, Linda. Uh, Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, First of all, I just want to um, respond to that woman from Haifa. I recommend to everyone this beautiful book called A Piragon. And it's about restorative justice practices in, in Palestine and Israel. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, uh, amazing book, A Piragon. Um, anyway, I, I just wanted to say, I've, I've done this work for about 10, 15 years myself. And uh, mostly in Chicago public schools, uh, but uh, um, 
I just want to say, and everyone has said this already, but the whole notion of the victim and, and victimizer, they the roles begin to blur. Mm. And um, it changes you profoundly as, as you have experience. It just changes you profoundly. And I didn't, and, and <laughs> this, is, this is not humble at all, but I didn't find it difficult because you sit in, you sit in circle. It just happens because you experience people. It just happens. And uh, at least that, that was my experience. And um, uh, thank you for what you're doing. And I, I want to say that um, um, this is one of the best presentations I've heard on this. So thank you. Thank you so much, Linda. I so appreciate your reflection, especially from having sat in circles yourself. And yeah, you know, many people um, name that I, there's something that does happen through these restorative justice processes that is almost impossible to name or to predict. Um, some people call it magic. <laughs> um, I noticed that it's, there's, and this is actually something that I'd love to refer you to Lindsay Pointer's work. Um, she writes about restorative justice as a ritual space and how it actually invites us into this liminal experience, right? Like that we're kind of in between. Um, and in a practical sense, what that feels like to me is that in circle, it's this kind of like space out of time where we learn to listen and speak in a way that's not common or typical in our daily interactions. And there's something possible through that, which I believe is it's just tapping into some of those shared pieces of our humanity that go beyond, you know, ideologies or political affiliations or what I should say or who I should be and actually lifts us into this space of connection. Um, and so with this activity, just to wrap up, I just wanted to point out something that Itaf shared too, is that in the restorative justice process, we are learning about needs and we're focusing on how, how is, each person had these universal needs met or not met. And what can we do to either take ownership to meet those needs differently and or lean on each other um, to identify who, who can do something here? How can we recognize our interconnectivity, our relationality and be in community to, to reach those needs? Um, and so, I will pause here, um, but I want to just thank you so much for participating and for those of you who added to the chat and who spoke up um, and appreciate all of you. And I will bounce back to Kathy and Patty to see if there are questions. You are mute, Kathy. You're still in mute. Thank you. Thanks. Um, uh, I just wanted to thank Kathleen and everyone who's here participating in this call. Um, 
Kathleen, that was a beautifully expressed way of um, kind of wrapping up restorative justice approaches and, and practicing peace in, in various ways. And I'm so grateful that you were able to share that as well as everyone who has, you know, shared their thoughts. And um, I'm wondering if anybody has any specific uh, questions for Kathleen at this point. You can raise your hand visually or you can raise it um, through the Zoom um, capability. Okay, I'm scanning. I'm on my phone, so I'm scanning to see who's raising their hand because I know who has uh, something to add, or I would hope. Dan's raising his physical hand. Etaf <laughs> uh, and then Dan. Etaf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to ask uh, how we can get the book because I learned restorative justice uh, here in Israel, Palestine. We group, we learned together as a Jewish and Arab, but many years ago in 2004. And also we have in our traditional, as the Arab traditional, we have the sulha, but I find it, it's different because mm -hmm. um, um, it's not really the same, the same process. They didn't take the harm and uh, to, to be, to do that. But uh, it's, it's like, a, uh, just like a, the, the leader of the community, they do the restorative and without, and it's not, uh, yeah. And I will be happy to get the book. Yeah, Itaf, um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, if, if only the leaders are involved in talking about the harm, it, it isn't likely that people are going to feel seen and validated and heard the way that, you know, you were so beautifully listing those needs in that activity. Um, are you, if, if there's a link in the chat for ordering the book online, and if that won't work for you, um, please write to me that uh, my, my website is gonna be in the chat too. You're welcome to write to me and I can make sure that I can get a book to you. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. Dan? Um, yeah, uh, I really enjoyed hearing um, the description of your journey. Um, and um, I'm curious if you wanna share um, a little bit about what some of your main focus areas are now, like what, what um, priorities are, projects, horizons, yeah. Thank you, Dan, so much for the question. Um, yeah, so uh, in exactly one year ago, actually, I'm celebrating a one year anniversary of starting a business. I left LCJP, the nonprofit, after eight years um, on April. April 1st, 2021. And now, um, thank you. Thank you for your support. Um, basically, what I wanted to do was work in three areas. So I'm working, I offer three services now, which you can see on my website. Uh, one is consulting with cities and communities that would like to build restorative justice programs. So at the moment, I'm supporting a community in Leon County, Florida, Portland, Oregon, and Aurora, Colorado. There's also some work being done in Dayton, Ohio. And that can look like any, just the, that initial place of, we wanna do this, what does it take? I'm, I'm happy to come in and support anywhere from that point all the way to, okay, we have our volunteers, 
recruited and we need to train them. Um, an area of specialty for me is working with law enforcement in the restorative justice partnership, which is not a very common application of restorative justice yet, um, but I'm happy to come to communities and bring Longmont police officers um, who can speak you know, from that law enforcement perspective about the value of restorative justice. The second area that I'm working in is in workplaces or community groups, people that have decided we really want to build a restorative and relational culture. So, you know, right now it, there's a lot of curiosity about how do we actually live out our company or our nonprofit's values. And often that has to do with creating a psychologically safe workplace and restorative tools um, can really help build the foundation of that and also offer some of those conflict transformation methods for when conflict arises. And then the third area is facilitation of conflict. So if you and others um, find yourselves in a difficult place with disagreement, conflict, or harm um, in any scenario, this could be in a, a family, a community group, a workplace, and you're looking for someone to come in and facilitate or mediate, um, I offer that service as well with an emphasis on all those restorative values of respect and responsibility and repair. Right. All right, I'm gonna uh, close up the call now. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I'm gonna give some of our uh, website links and then I'm gonna close with um, something from your book. You get it here. Uh, so uh, we are the Peace Alliance, empowering civic action for a culture of peace. We have five cornerstones of peace. Uh, uh, personal peace, uh, practicing peace in schools, humanizing the criminal justice system, community peace building and international peace building. And uh, we have the blueprint for peace, which notifies all of your officials, local, state, federal, that you want uh, peace priority building in to um, re be reflected in legislation. We've got thousands of people around the country that have been contacted just with because of the Blueprint for Peace. So you can link on the click on the link and, and sign that. Very easy, one click. And then we have the Department of Peace Building, and there is the website uh, in the chat for that. Uh, all of our events can be found on our calendar. You can go to peacealliance.org in the top right-hand corner is the calendar. Uh, we have um, empathy circles, the National Peace Builder calls. This month, we've got Marianne Williamson on one call. We have the Department of Peace Building calls on Wednesday nights. Uh, we have Dennis Kucinich on the call this month. Uh, we have Building Peace Story by Story, which is something that um, was televised uh, and recorded and we have all of those recordings talking about what a Department of Peace means to us, what it would, what it would do for our country and the world. Uh, we have Hip Hop for Peace and the Hope Story Circles. And all of those links are in the chat. And if you appreciate our programs, uh, you can donate here. Uh, we uh, especially appreciate monthly donors so we can have sustainable income. We are mostly volunteer driven, but we do uh, have a budget for um, 
you know, the necessities for running an organization. And so I want to close with something from Lindsay's and Kathleen's and Haley's book. Uh, I'll, I'll say also, I, I started this last Saturday. I was going to read like a couple of chapters a day, but I couldn't put it down. So I love the book. It's only 116 pages, very short. So thank you, Kathleen. Uh, the restorative worldview sees humans as fundamentally relational beings, intricately connected to one another and to their environment. The values that emerge from this worldview include respect, accountability, participation, self-determination, nonviolence, humility, trust, and transformation. It is the mission of the restorative justice movement to transform individuals and social structures to be in alignment with the worldview and the core restorative values. So thank you all. Thank you, Kathleen, for by being the first in this series of restorative justice practices, calls, and books. And uh, thank everyone for being here and for participating today. It's been a very rich conversation. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We should be able to. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.